We're continuing our series on hope. Hope, as we've said, is one of the most central realities in the Christian faith, but it is also, I think, one of the most misunderstood realities of the Christian faith. And so we are taking a closer look at what God has to say about hope. And last week, if you were with us, you you saw through Romans 5, through Paul's letter to the Romans, that hope enables us to endure suffering without despair. This week we are going to look at Psalm 130. And so if you have that, that's on page 518, Psalm 130. I'll read, you can follow along, we'll pray and we'll dig in. This is Psalm 130 and this is God's Word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray briefly here before we dive in. Lord, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, you breathe out these words and we ask now that you would soften our hearts and illumine the page sitting on our lap so that we would not just gain information, but that we would actually encounter you, Jesus, through this song. We ask it in your name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I was hanging out with a friend, and I was having trouble, if I'm honest, listening to what they were saying, because there was a song on in the background. Now, this happens to me a lot. If you didn't know, ask my wife. But the song, the reason it captured me, the reason it distracted me is because it was arresting. The song was arresting. And I found out later it was a song by Pat the Bunny. You heard of him? No? Okay. Apparently, and I found this out later, a leader in the do-it-yourself acoustic punk scene. A leader in that movement. Okay. Uh, But it wasn't his music that distracted me. It was kind of distracting. It was what he was singing and the way he was singing it. And here were the lyrics. He's singing, I am not a good person. Ask anyone who knows me. I'm mean and bitter and a failure at everything I say I believe. I'm not a good person. Ask anyone who loves me. I never write. I never call. I never think about anyone at all. I don't know why I am this way. I've been like this since I can remember. I try to keep up with everything I know I should do, but then I fall to pieces anyway. And his brutal honesty as he was singing, he goes on, and there's some choice words in there as well uh, that I edited out for, um, for this purpose. But the brutal honesty distracted me. 
it caught me off guard. It challenged me. It, in some ways, it offended me at first. I'm like, what, what are you, come on, grow up, emo kid. Like, that's what I wanted to think. And I think it's because honesty about failure is so rare in my heart and I think in the culture that we live in. Honesty about failure. It seems that we are hardwired to self-justify our failures to whomever we fail. The social psychologist and feminist Carol Tavris wrote a book with an amazing title. One of those books that you hear the title and you feel like maybe I don't have to read the book. It's this, mistakes were made, and then in parentheses, but not by me. Mistakes were made, but not by me. And she writes, most people, when directly confronted by evidence that they are wrong, do not change their point of view or course of action, but justify it even more tenaciously. Even irrefutable evidence is rarely enough to pierce the mental armor of self-justification. And I know this firsthand. Do you? Do you know this firsthand? Every time I hurt someone with callous words, for instance, or selfish decisions, and they confront me on it, I, in very Christian, polite ways, justify myself. Why I am not to blame, actually. Because I can't handle how vulnerable and how naked it feels to be honest about my selfish heart. That's the truth. That's the truth. Recently I came home later than I said I would. And it put out my wife. I could have been honest. I said, will you forgive me for putting myself before you? For putting my knees before my word to you? Instead, what do I say? Traffic's bad. You don't know the demands of my job. Tavris calls what I did the horrifying calculus of self-deception the horrifying calculus or equation of self-deception, where, and I'm quoting her, the greater the pain we inflict on others, the greater the need to justify it to maintain our feelings of decency and self-worth. Isn't that an amazing equation that we all know all too well? The greater we inflict hurt onto others, the greater we feel the desire to justify ourselves. Why? To maintain our feelings of self-worth, and decency. And I believe she is completely right. But I also believe that God offers a better calculus, a better equation than self-deception and self-justification in order to maintain self-worth. The equation that God offers is given to us in the psalm that we just heard read aloud. All of the Psalms, including the Psalm we just heard aloud, do you understand, is what God wants His people to say, to think, to believe, to sing. 
even if, especially when we don't believe the words that we're saying and singing from the Psalms. And we're having trouble feeling the things that the Psalms say. God still wants us to sing them. Why? Because he wants to shape us into the kind of people who do feel this. He wants us to be removed from the deceptive and what she calls the horrifying calculus of self-justification. And instead live in his calculus. An entirely different path of honesty before the Lord and others. And hope in the Lord. Honesty and hope. Instead of self-deception, we have honesty. And instead of self-justification to feel our worth, we have hope. It's an entirely different equation. And it's life-giving. And it's a different equation because it's centered on the Lord. This whole psalm is a prayer to Him. What would it look like if we took our feelings of failure, our real failures... Those moments when you feel like you are in the depths. That's the verse. That's the word in verse one. Out of the depths, I cry out to you, O Lord. This is your bottoming out moment. This is what it feels like when you're drowning. When you've made a mistake, when you failed and you cannot hide from it anymore. What would it look like if you took that failure And converted it instead of self-justification into a prayer. Then this is what it would look like. Honesty and hope. Honesty and hope. Let's look at each in turn. The first thing that we can do in the face of failure is total honesty. Verses 1 through 4 is a brutally honest confession of inability and need. It is the opposite of self-deception. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The image of verse 1 is the experience of drowning. Out of the depths I cry out to you. I have a friend who told me about his near-death experience of drowning. Or near drowning. At Fort Myers Beach on the coast. Being ripped under by the undertow. He was utterly helpless and he tells me he cried out, quite literally, for mercy. There are moments every day in your life, every day, There are moments if we're attentive to them. We're not distracted by our phones. We're not ignoring them. Through other clever ways of ignoring them. Through substance. Whatever else it is. There are moments. Many moments throughout our day. Where we come up against our inability. To fix things. When we come face to face with failures of our own making. And the only thing that we can do in those moments is cry mercy. <laughs> I think of Lewis, our little two-year-old, in his crib. All He hasn't figured out, like my firstborn Jude, how to crawl out of that thing yet. So all he can do to get my attention if I'm asleep, he did this last night actually, is cry. That's all he can do. That is the extent to which he can act. Is crying out for mercy. Come get me. Come get me. 
And that's the image that God wants us to experience in our failure as well. We can't crawl out. One translator translates the cry of mercy in verse 2 as a spiritual SOS. So when you fail, you have a choice, friends. Denial, self-justification, or complete honesty. If God, I believe, makes this psalm the cry of your heart, then you will be honest next time about your sin. You will not try initially to get off of the hook. Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, he used to say that whoever wants to be merciful to himself, to him God will be unmerciful. And whoever is unmerciful to himself, to him God will be merciful. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying don't get yourself off the hook. Don't try to give yourself human manufactured mercy. Don't do that. Instead, own the fact that you need mercy. Cry out and God will pour it out on you. If Luther had some of the categories that Tavris has, Luther would be saying, do not self-deceive yourself and do not self-justify yourself. Be honest and receive the justification that comes from God. God wants you to be honest. So make it your daily practice. I urge you to confess your sins. The Ignatians have a healthy practice, I think. They call the daily examine. The daily examine is where at the end of your day, you reflect on your day, you examine your day, but you do so with total honesty. But you don't have to wait to the end of the day to confess. Confession can be a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour thing in your life. Do you know the word confession in the Greek is homologeo, which means same word, which is instructive to me. When you're confessing sins, you're not letting the Lord in on something. You are saying the same word that he already knows. He knows your inability and he knows the way in which you've messed up. And so when we confess, it is the liberating experience of simply agreeing with God. And so make it your daily practice to confess sin. I also think make it your daily experience to enjoy the freedom that comes with honesty before the Lord. The reason that we are honest before others and before the Lord is because we are afraid and we are ashamed. Is that not true? Tavris says the reason that the harder we harm, the the more we harm others, the more we sort of bunker down into our self-justifications. She says, and I think she's right, the reason we do that is because we feel so exposed. And we do not want to feel the shame of hurting others. So we look for all kinds of justifications. We self-justify because we need to maintain our sense of being loved and feeling lovely. The beauty of the gospel, as I've experienced it, and as it's unpacked in the scriptures, is that only with this Lord, the triune Lord, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, can we be totally honest and completely known and loved at the same time. 
Verses 3 and 4 are crucial for this. The psalmist cries out, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And so verse 3 says that our sins are that bad. We're not sweeping God's holiness or our sinfulness under the rug when we say that God is a God of forgiveness. There is true guilt and true shame that can come from our sin. But verse 4 says, with the Lord is forgiveness. The true guilt and shame for sin has been in a true way forgiven. The original singers of this psalm understood that this forgiveness came through a lamb that was slain in their place. And those who were circumcised of heart were able to look at that lamb and look forward to the day when a greater, more perfect, once for all lamb would be slain. And we who live on the other side of that cross, we know, we know that in verse 3 and verse 4, God's holiness and God's forgiveness are met perfectly at that cross. It says in verse 3, If you, O Lord, can mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The word mark there is actually keep or guard. The same sense that comes from the watchman in the morning in verse 6. And so the image here is of the psalmist saying, If you actually guarded or watched or corralled or kept my sins, my failings, then I could not stand. But do you know that on the cross, Jesus could not stand because the sins that would be marked out for us was marked out instead on Him. In His dying, we have been forgiven. I never tire of of explaining that to, to to you all because I need to hear it myself over and over and over again. If the Lord would mark or corral or guard your sins, you could not stand. And so what does the Lord who is holy do? Jesus, His Son, was marked in our place. When you look at Jesus on the cross, you can see the Lord in His holiness keeping our sins there. Guarding them there. And they will not leave that cross under His guardian. You know, sometimes it's like, okay, yeah, I believe, I believe in Jesus. I believe that the work on the cross rescued me. I believe that the work on the cross saved me. I believe the work on the cross forgave me. But then I messed up really big, and that sin must have fallen off the cross. No. The Lord keeps them there. They have been dealt with forever. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The holiness of God in verse 3 and the forgiveness and love of God in verse 4 are married on the cross. And they're only found under the cross. This enables me to be totally honest about my sins. If I know that all of my sins, past, present, and future, have been corralled on the cross, on Jesus, in place of me, then that means I can be 
brutally honest about my sins. They've been dealt with. And I don't need to fear shame because I'm in Jesus. Jack Miller, when confronted, I understand he used to say, someone would come up to him after a sermon or after service or through the week and confront him on something he said or did or didn't say or didn't do. And apparently what he used to say is he used to say, thank you for telling me that. Will you pray for me? Because I'm a lot worse than that. It goes way deeper than that in ways that I don't even know. And I've used that before. I stole that from them. And what does it do? I recommend you use it too. It kills self-justification at the root. And it believes in the cross of Jesus. That's what it does. I'm worse than that. But I stand in Christ. I'm forgiven. So I can be honest. So next time someone says, you know what? Like that really hurt. The first thing you should do is think how much worse you really are. And look at the cross and see Jesus. You can be honest. You can be honest. And so the first thing we do in the face of failure is honesty. It's confession. We don't self-justify. We don't deny deny what's really true. The second thing we do is we hope. Take a look at the final four verses says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen in the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There's that hope in Jesus, that future hope of that future redemption. Now listen, do you notice in these verses a change in perspective? Take a look at the first four verses and then compare to the final four verses. Do you see the change in perspective? The psalm moves from, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, which is a signal. The honest prayer, the honesty of verses 1 through 4 is turning into a sermon on hope, is what it's doing. It goes from a plea, a directed plea to the Lord, to a proclamation to everybody else in the assembly. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. As a watchman for the morning, hope in the Lord. When a believer experiences total honesty and total forgiveness from the Lord, we become a hope-filled person. We live by hope in the Lord. The image we're given in verse 6 is a watchman. They stood at the walls overnight and they longed for morning to come. I don't know why they longed for morning to come. It's not answered for us in this particular psalm. Maybe they were hungry. Maybe they were scared and they just wanted to go home. Probably they were just tired and wanted to rest. And they were longing for the morning to come so their shift would be over. That is the experience of every believer. We are on watch, awaiting the return of Jesus. (laughs) And we're hoping in that future day. We're longing for that morning to come. We're forgiven, we're washed, but we're waiting. 
We're waiting for the full completion of God's work in our life. We're waiting for Jesus to finish what he started in our life. We're waiting for the full restoration, not just of our lives, but the brokenness in this world. When he recreates and and restores all that is broken. All the injustices that we've incurred and that we've made in our own lives. What enables us to hope, to keep hoping, and to wait for that day? Well, the preacher here gives us two reasons, two really good reasons. We could call them the two companions of the Lord. The Lord's steadfast love and the Lord's plentiful redemption. He's like, hope in the Lord, hope in the Lord, for, verse 7, with the Lord, with the Lord is steadfast love. And then he says, with the Lord is plentiful redemption. These are the two companions of the Lord. Steadfast love and redemption are always with the Lord. Always. Which means, if you are in the Lord, you have those two things always. You have those two things always. Steadfast love. John Golingay says this word should be translated as commitment. If you have the Lord, then you have the Lord's commitment. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And we do everything possible. And we give the Lord every reason to abandon his commitment. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If you are in the Lord, he will not abandon his commitment. Do you believe me? He will not. He cannot. 1 Corinthians 1.30 God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Jesus to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. And He freed us for sin. Paul is saying that if your trust is in Jesus, you are united to Jesus. If you are united to Jesus, then you have God's commitment now and always. He is more committed to you than you even are committed to Him. I know we get that message backwards in church too often where we say, commit yourself to the Lord so you can experience his commitment. But I'm sorry, the gospel says something entirely opposite. It says the Lord is committed to you, therefore commit yourself to the Lord. And there's nothing you can do to change that status. Nothing. No good work and no massive moral fallout. You have what is a companion of the Lord, his steadfast love. If you are in the Lord, you also have plentiful redemption. Redemption is freedom from slavery. That's what that word means. If you are in the Lord, if you are the Lord's, then you have his plentiful redemption. You have freedom, true freedom. You are not in slavery. Titus 2.14 says Jesus gave his life to free us or to redeem us of every kind of sin. To cleanse us and to make us his own people totally committed to doing good deeds. 
So these two companions of the Lord tell us that we are not holding on to God so much as God is holding on to us. And when He holds on to us, we get His companions. And His companions are His commitment and His redemption. And they will never leave you. And that helps you hope, doesn't it? That helps you hold on. I love what Jackie Hill Perry says. She says, A constant prayer of mine is that the Lord would keep me. Surely I'm not too strong or too solid to fail. His hand must hold my own, she says. That's hope. Friends, that's hope. Hope is knowing that the Lord holds your hand stronger than you can hold his. And he will walk you to the end. What this means is that you have to abandon false hopes. Just abandon them. Even the best things in your life can be a false hope. Abandon them as a hope, as an as a ultimate hope, so that you can then enjoy it as a gift from God. Because anything but this Lord, any lowercase l Lord in your life, or any lowercase g God in your life, anything that you would put, even good things like family, or career, or fashion, or fitness, or image, whatever, any of those things, if they take the place of this hope, then they will let you down. Stephen, um, I'll, I'll never remember him telling our class, Every false Lord has a hell. When you fail fashion, there is a fashion hell. When you fail Instagram, there is an Instagram hell. You don't get all the likes you want, right? You feel left out. When you fail the God of athletics, when you get injured or when you do not succeed, there is an athletic hell. When your career is your Lord and your hope is in your career, there is a hell for you when you fail. But with the Lord, for whom there is a real hell, when you fail Him, He says, with me is commitment and redemption. Do you not forget? I died for you. The true Lord is the only Lord who dies for those who fail him. And so abandon your false hopes and find your rest in him. Let's renew our hope in the Lord this morning. Or maybe come to him for the first time this morning as your only hope. This is the key Verse 4 is the key. This is the key to change. You're like, I want to change. I want, I want freedom from the bondage I feel from all these false lords. The key to change is in verse 4. It says, when we walk through the doors of the gospel, conviction of sin, verse 3. And then forgiveness of sin, verse 4. When we walk through those two doors, and both are necessary. The bad news and the good news of the gospel. When we walk through those double doors... The psalmist says something will happen. The Lord would be feared. This word here is not a slavish fear, not an unhealthy fear, 
but a reverence and a worship and an awe before the God who forgives us. You could even say a living hope in the Lord instead of all the false hopes in our life. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. In a way, he's paraphrasing this. He's saying it's the here the psalmist is saying it's the forgiveness of the Lord that leads us to worship. We get it the other way around. We think that, oh, if we worship the Lord, if we hope in the Lord, if we fear the Lord, if we stand before his awesome majesty, then he will forgive us. But here it says, no, 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 quite the opposite. You experience his forgiveness, his companions, redemption, and steadfast love. And then we walk a path of worship and hope. Our heart changes. The disposition of our heart changes. We no longer approach God to get what we want. We approach God out of love and joy. I recently connected with a friend who described the pivotal moment in his life, the pivotal moment in his relationship with God. Do you know what it was? It was his complete bottoming out. His complete ownership of his failure. Isn't that interesting? In America, we would think that the pivot points in our lives are the places where we experience success. But not in God's economy. And not if you're singing Psalm 130. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. And so when you experience His forgiveness at the bottom of your rope, your heart changes, is melted. Our face is turned toward God. And we start to hope in Him. Honesty and hope. That's the life-giving equation. Honesty and hope. Honesty and hope. Jesus calls the sick. Let's be honest about our sickness. Not the self-deceived healthy. Let's be honest. Let's go to the hospital. And let's point out our sickness so that He can change us. So that we can open Him.